Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Thanks, Lauren. Um, and so I, I mentioned a word before, um, which was carlified, which I invented yesterday. And so Carl, I don't believe, is here this morning. So hopefully he's pulled up okay from his labours at the, the working bee yesterday. And so um, if you know Carl or don't know Carl, um, it's probably a better way to put that. Um, Carl likes to uh, take things um, and go that one step further. And so um, uh, for those who are familiar with the, the, what was on the sign before, um, I just asked Carl to straighten out the letters a little bit and he's gone above and beyond that and, and added lots more information and made it look great and um, if you're familiar with the condition of the cleaning storeroom cupboard before, that's been carlified as well and it's much tidier and, and um, in great order. And so um, I said, carlified is when you think, oh, just do a quick five-minute job on that and Carl spends an hour but makes it much better than you anticipated. And so the reason I mention that is um, I also did ask Carl a couple months ago to, um, because our, our brother Colin, who... Um, is no longer able to physically come on a Sunday morning. We were doing CDs for him. And so I asked Carl to take that on, um, doing the CD for that. And so Carl has carlified that. Um, and so now we do have our sermons on a podcast and they're on the new website. And he's added a little intro and outro um, piece of music to that. Um, but he's also um, making now CDs. Um, and so, of course, it's free online, um, all our sermon recordings. But if you want to grab a CD of something... Um, just mention the, the, the message it is to Carl or to myself um, and we're just asking for $2 to cover the cost of that. Um, but as a, well, an introductory offer, I don't know. Um, <laughs> a, few weeks, a, a few weeks ago we did a two-week series um, on our call as a church in a changing world and um, as we are a bit this morning, we're a bit of a remnant of our church with sickness and travel um, and I, it's really on my heart that, that the the whole church kind of grabbed this message. And so if you don't have access um, or, or technology is a bit scary for you, um, you'd like a, a CD copy of that, that message, I want to make sure that everyone can get one of those for free. So I've only actually got one copy of those two messages this morning. Um, so you, if you the first person to speak to me after, you'll get that. Um, yeah, you're a visitor, you can have it. Uh, you're travelling, yeah. So 
Um, so if someone else wants a copy of that, um, can't get it on the podcast. So if you go to the normal podcasting apps and search for our church name in there, you'll, you should be able to find it. But if you want a CD, let me know today. Carl will make them during the week. And um, So the two messages are um, being agents of Shalom and ambassadors of the gospel. And um, really on my heart, particularly those two messages for the whole church to grab them. Um, and so this week we're starting in Philippians. Um, and uh, really been encouraged and inspired as I've been studying Philippians again for, for this series that, that God's Word is so relevant even 2,000 years after Paul penned it. It's just like, oh, he's written it for today. Um, and so I've just been really encouraged and inspired um, by Philippians as I've been studying it. So hopefully um, God does the same for each of us as we jump into that this morning. So let me pray again um, for God's Word to... Um, to ring in our hearts this morning and then let's jump in. And so, Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who your spirit moved in and who wrote this letter to the little church in the town of Philippi thousands of years ago. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit not just today, but over the next four weeks as we explore this letter to the church in Philippi. I pray that by your Spirit, you would have us not just hear words, but, but be transformed in heart with the message that you would have us receive from your word in Philippians. And so give us ears to hear freshly this morning, Lord. Give us a spirit to receive freshly this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, my iPad has decided to reboot a little bit, so it's the problem of trying to use technology um, to get them up. So we're exploring Paul's letter to the church in Philippi and, and, and so it helps us to have a little bit of the background of this church. And so this is a church that Paul initiated. We can read the story of it in um, Acts chapter 16 which tells us it's a Roman colony and a leading city in the area of Macedonia. And so if you're familiar with Acts, Paul wanted to get across to a different part of the known world at that time but he had a dream where a Macedonian man said, come and help us. In Macedonia, and so Philippi is a key city, a Roman uh, colony in in Macedonia, and it's a it's a kind of a regional city in its area. Uh, and unlike many other cities that Paul went to, there's probably not a large Jewish community in Philippi. Uh, normally, we read of Paul finding the Jewish community, going to the synagogue, beginning there, getting kicked out of the synagogue, and going to the Gentiles. But in Philippi, instead of going to the synagogue, he finds a small group of people who are who are going out on the Sabbath to pray by a river. And so this is a, a, in a, being a Roman city, is not just a fairly anti-Christian city, but anti-Jewish city. And so in many places, in, in the, at least the initial season of the church, the, the, the Christians were kind of able to hide under the radar of the Jewish community. But that's not the case in Philippi. And so we read about Lydia being the first to believe. She was a God-fearer and, and God enabled her heart to believe the Word. We read about that in Acts 16 and we're told that she was a purple cloth dealer. Um, and so if you know anything about ancient history, you'll know that if you dealt in purple cloth, um, you were a reasonably wealthy person because um, only um, in, in most places, only the emperor um, in, Rome, in Rome or certain priests 
um, or people who were dressed up as the god Jupiter, the false god Jupiter, were allowed to wear purple and it was a rare thing. And so Lydia dealt in, in um, purple cloth and so she was a wealthy person and it's likely the church began to meet at their home. It's Philippi where Paul and Silas um, cast out a demon from, from a little girl and, and they were stripped, they were beaten, they were imprisoned and it's, it's in Philippi where we read about Paul and Silas singing for joy at midnight in chains and an earthquake supernaturally shaking their chains off which led to the, the Roman jailer in Philippi coming to faith in Jesus and his whole family. And so after this though, Paul and Silas and their, their band of missionaries are kind of chased out of town. And so they leave behind this, <clears throat> pardon me, this fledgling church in Philippi that includes a, a purple cloth dealer, a Roman jailer and, and likely several other people who are, are, are very diverse in nature. This is not a, a uniform church um, but many scholars would say from reading, reading Philippians, Paul's favourite church, the church he, he, he has great affection for, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But so Paul's writing this letter to the church in chains, and, we'll, and we, we see that throughout the first chapter, that, that Paul, when he writes this letter, is imprisoned. And people have lots of different theories about where he is, but it's most likely that he's imprisoned in Rome, Uh, And we don't know how long before, but ultimately his imprisonment leads to his execution. Either this time round or he gets freed and and, and he's imprisoned again. But but Paul is in chains and he's writing uh, this letter to the church in Philippi who, who love him. He's the founder of their church. He's the apostle who oversees the church. And he's been arrested and in chains and he's facing trial. And there's a likelihood that he might be executed. And so in the midst of that, Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church to encourage them. And, and it's a short letter, but uh, I can, I could, if I was a betting person, would bet that many of the one-line kind of verses, of inspirational verses that you might have in your head come from these short four chapters. Uh, and, and today, the, the one that uh, Lauren's reading finished with, this, this famous phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, now, I won't name anyone this morning, but... but Someone this week had this tattooed on their arm um, in this church. Someone else has it tattooed on their foot. Um, and not that tattoos is the, the, the only thing, but this is a verse that, that many of us, we might not know where it comes from, but we know it. There's other ones um, that, you know, our attitude should be that as Christ from Philippians 2. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus. Many of these quotable quotes come from Philippians. It's a packed uh, letter of one-liners. And so this, this first chapter of Philippians centers around this phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's, it's a profound statement stripped of all context but in the context of of Philippians chapter 1 it's so much stronger in its meaning and I hope that we can explore that this morning. For Paul what it means is that everything is in, of, by and for Jesus. Nothing else matters. Paul is a man of singular purpose and passion in life. Everything is in, of and by and for Jesus. Nothing else matters. 
And so we first see in this letter Paul's passion for the gospel of Jesus, Paul's passion for Jesus in his joy for the Philippian church's partnership with the gospel. As I've said that this is most likely Paul's favorite church, his church that he had the least trouble with. We see Paul writing to the Galatian church, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you? Many of us would be familiar with Paul's two letters to the Corinthian church where it's like the subtext of that is Paul banging his head on the wall thinking, what are you doing? But we don't find any of that in the Philippian church. We find Paul's joy for them. And the reason for this, the central reason, the biggest reason for Paul's joy in the Philippian church is that they partnered with or they fellowshiped with in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. In verses 3 and 5, which is a bit before what I asked Lauren to read, it says, I thank God every time I remember you. That's speaking of the church in Philippi. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so for Paul to preach the gospel has to do with Jesus It has to do with Jesus, his person, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection. To preach the gospel, to partner in the gospel is to partner in Jesus, to partner in preaching Jesus. In Philippi, in the, sorry, the letter to the Philippian church, we we don't get a summary of Paul's gospel because they are partnering with him in it. He celebrates for joy their partnership with him in it. But if we flip over to Colossians, in verses 19 to 23 of the first chapter of Colossians, he, he obviously felt he needed to remind them of the gospel. And he says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and for which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so Paul details who Jesus is, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, what Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished for believers and he says, that's the gospel. For for Paul, the gospel and Jesus are the same thing. The gospel is the speaking out of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. In two Timothy verses eight and uh, two Timothy chapter two verses eight and nine, we get an even more succinct reminder of what the gospel is. Paul says, "Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel." Jesus is the gospel. And so when Paul says to the Philippian church, his, his source of joy is their partnership in the gospel, he's not just saying they've been really good evangelists. He's talking about the church's entire orientation towards Jesus. Including evangelism, including proclaiming his name. But he says, from the first day until now, Jesus and the gospel has been at the center of the church. This is the source of Paul's joy over the church. They haven't, like the Galatians church, drifted off into 
concerns about following the Jewish law. They haven't, like the Corinthian church, become stratified over who had the most special spiritual gift or not, or who had the most money or not. The, the Philippian church has been, from the first day until now, when Paul wrote it, many years after he first met them, partnered, fellowshiped with, embraced Jesus as the number one passion and purpose for the church. It's kind of like, uh, uh, as a parent, I've got two kids at school now and one who we're waiting to go to school, um, though we're, we're, we're loving every minute with him at home and um, he's such a joy um, every second of the day. Um, but in talking to parents, it's, it's when you get the report card or the report booklet, um, it is these days, there's lots of information in there. It's interesting that different parents care about different things. Some parents just are purely interested in the academic results. Um, and so they just skim over, look at the scores. Okay, my kid's smart, my kid's doing well at school or not doing well at school. Others look at the comments and they really care about what does the teacher say about my child. Um, and I remember, and sorry this was you, I remember talking to one parent and saying that the thing they were most proud about was the teacher's last comment about how their child was engaging well socially with friends and was a kind person to his friends. And so they, he did well on the other things, but, but the most important thing for them was this little piece at the end of, my child is kind to his friends. And so this, this letter is, in a sense, this partnership with the gospel is kind of the thing that Paul as the apostle, as the father in a sense of the Philippian church, he's saying, this is the one thing I care about. They might have had a great meeting space in Lydia's house. They might have had great worship services. They might have had great singers. They might have been great, you know, teachers and preachers in the church. They might have given lots in offering, which we know they did from... from um, their contributions to Paul's ministry that he talks about. But, but the one thing on the report card, on the, the health checklist of this church that Paul cares about is their partnership in the gospel, about the place of Jesus in the life of the church. The, the question that he's asked of us is, is what really matters for us as a church? We, we might have lots of things on our report card but the one thing that Paul is an apostle and the one thing I believe God actually cares about is where does Jesus fit in our church? And are we proclaiming his name? Is everything we do in, of, by and for Jesus? Because those are the only things that really matter. As I said, Paul is a person of a single passion and that's first represented in his, his joy and rejoicing over the, the church in Philippi's partnering and fellowshipping in the, in the advancement of the message of Jesus. But we also see it, if we go down further, in Paul's joy because of his own chains advancing the gospel. So as we said, Paul is in chains, he's imprisoned in Rome and the church in Philippi were troubled by this. Uh, we can't really think of an uh, equivalent of what Paul would have meant to this church. I mean, I hope, hope you'd be a little bit worried for me if I got imprisoned, but, but I'm not the founder of the church. I'm not uh, the, the one who first told each of you about Jesus. I'm not the one who led you into the faith. I'm not the one who, who uh, is kind of an, an apostle over the life of the, the church. And, and so we can't really grab an equivalent of, of how shocking this would have been for the church in Philippi to have the, the, the apostle Paul imprisoned 
and facing trial, possibly to be executed in Rome. And so the Philippian church were worried and they sent one of their brothers to him with a gift to support him. And um, as we'll see next week in Philippians 2, he almost died from sickness. And, and so the Philippian church is uh, an anxious church at the moment. And they were no doubt, they would have no doubt seen Paul's imprisonment as a major setback for the gospel and a major setback for Christianity in the Roman Empire. But Paul is rejoicing because the exact opposite has been true. Paul says to reassure them in in 12 to 14, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to not hinder the gospel, but to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And so rather than hinder the gospel, rather than damage the advancement of faith in Jesus, Paul's chains, his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. Because Paul's imprisoned in Rome, he's had the opportunity to proclaim Christ to Caesar's own palace guard, to the, the ruler of the known world's closest, most intimate uh, people. Paul's had the opportunity to proclaim Christ to them. Later on, at the end of the letter, Paul sends greetings and uh, it seems that he takes great delight to say greetings from all the brothers and sisters, including those from Caesar's household. So not just has Paul had the opportunity to proclaim Christ in Caesar's household, some have come to call Jesus Lord. Those most close to Caesar who would call himself Lord and Saviour have come to call Jesus Lord and Saviour. And so Paul's chains have made that possible, but he also says that his chains have resulted in the other brothers and sisters in Jesus in Rome, speaking the word of God more courageously. And so rather than hinder the gospel, Paul's chains have advanced the gospel. Regardless of the personal cost to him, he rejoices because the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. Jesus is preached. Now, hopefully, I I don't need to say that being in a Roman prison was not a fun place to be. The reason the Philippian church sent uh, their brother Epaphroditus to Rome to care for Paul was if you were in a prison in those days, you did not receive any care. You weren't fed unless someone brought you food. You weren't cared for medically, in a sense, unless someone brought that for you. You were in a prison cell in a dungeon locked up and left there and so Paul's experience personally would not have been fun or pleasurable but he doesn't care about that Paul's concern is that Jesus is preached because he's a person of singular passion his passion is Jesus and that Jesus would be known that people would call upon Jesus as Lord and so he rejoices And even within the church community, not everybody is favourable towards Paul. Some are actually uh, preaching the gospel to make life more difficult for Paul, however that looks, whatever that means. And still Paul rejoices. 
He says in verse 18, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Jesus Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul is concerned more about the advancement of the gospel than his own well-being. And so the challenge for us is to ask the question, could we say the same? Could we say the same? That we are more concerned about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ than our own well-being? Are we more concerned about the advancement of the gospel or are we more concerned about personal comfort? Are our hearts so passionate about Jesus that despite the personal setbacks, discomfort, challenges in our own life, we rejoice simply because Jesus is preached? Paul's passion for Jesus and the gospel is evident in his rejoicing over the Philippian church because they share that passion. It's evident in his rejoicing over the advancement of the gospel, not despite but because of his chains and it's clearly evident in the statement um, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we find this statement in, in Paul shifting from updating the Philippian church on his present situation advancing the gospel to thinking about what might be about to come for him. He says in verses 20 and 21 um, of Philippians chapter 1, um, speaking about his coming trial, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so whether he's sentenced to death, whether he's tortured, whether he's punished, whether he's set free, Paul's concern is that Christ will be exalted through him. To live is for Christ, to live is in Christ, to live is to be with Christ, to live is being formed into the image of Christ, seeking to have the same attitude as Christ, worshipping Christ and proclaiming Christ. To live is Christ for Paul. It's intentionally a absolute statement. There's intentionally no modifiers in Paul's statement because everything that we could plug into there is true. To live is Christ for him and he says to die is gain or profit because to die is to be with Christ in completeness. And so this is a catchy quotable quote. It's the kind of thing you might have tattooed on your arm or on your foot um, or engraved in a plaque and put on your wall or, or, or just to be your, your catchy little phrase. And it's actually intended to be catchy. It's even more catchy in the original Greek. It's... Um, part of my pronunciation but it's to zen christos to apathenian kurdos paul intentionally uses an unusual word for gain to make it kind of sound like christos which is the word for christ he intends this to be a catchy pithy statement but it's so much more powerful if we consider it is written by a man imprisoned facing trial and execution to a church that is under persecution and opposition It's easy to say when everything is comfortable for the church that to live 
is Christ to die as gain, but can we not just say it but live it when things get less comfortable? We shouldn't overplay the, the current situation in our country and in the Western world and, and, and stir up fear. But things are getting less favourable for the church. Society is, is shifting to a position that, that less certainly places the church at the centre but perhaps wants to push the church to the margins. And so it's in this context, in, in this context of a changing world and, and, if, and if in the days to come the, the church re- loses um, religious freedom, which will impact me first and foremostly before others, um, being someone who's an a, um, employed Christian, whatever you, however you call that. Um, but if the church loses its freedom in a, in a legal sense in our, in our world, then we must still cling to this ideal, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in fact, that's the season when we must live it more abundantly. As Christianity and as the church get pressed to the margins of Western society, we need to be on guard against Jesus and our faith being moved to the margins of our own life. As Christianity is pushed to the margins of our society, we need to be on guard against it being pushed to the margins of our own lives. Instead, we must press towards living out the words of Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To suffer or be ostracized for the name of Jesus is a matter of rejoicing, not a terror to avoid. It's not just a catchphrase. It's not just something to tattoo on our body. But it's the attitude that we each must take as followers of Jesus in good times, in difficult times, in prosperity, in poverty. When the church is in favour and when the church is persecuted. To live is Christ. To die is to our profit because we get to be with Christ. And so Paul goes on to make it clear that he that he hopes his hope for the church is that they embrace this attitude, that they live out this attitude. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's saying to the Philippian church, this idea of to, to live is Christ and to die is gain is not just a catchy little motto. Not just something for himself, but something for the whole church to embrace. In verse chapter 1, verse 27 to 28, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. So Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now this is not just Paul saying, try to be nice people. This is not just Paul saying, try to keep yourself from sin, which we should certainly try and be both of those things. This is Paul saying, live a life consistent with the truths contained in the gospel message. 
As he said in Colossians, the the gospel message includes the truth that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. To live consistently with that truth. To live consistently with the truth that for him and by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and by him. He is before all things and in all things together. He is the head of the body, the firstborn of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a life consistent with the truth that Jesus is supreme over everything. That to live is Christ. Paul goes on in Colossians, which I've already read, and I don't apologize for reading this again. And if you, if you get bored with these words, then maybe you need to meet Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. So to live a life consistent and worthy of the gospel with this truth is to live a life consistent with the knowledge that God wants to reconcile all things to himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I look around just outside our door and even some things within our door that there are things in this town that are not yet fully reconciled to God. So to live a life worthy of that gospel means, as Paul says elsewhere, that we need to be ambassadors of reconciliation. It doesn't mean just be nice people and don't sin. It means live a life that proclaims this truth because God wants all things to be reconciled to himself. It says, once that you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a righteous life. Seeking to be what Jesus has already accomplished for us, holy and blameless. Holding firm to the gospel being servants of the gospel. If we think that living a life worthy of the gospel is just being nice and don't sin, then we're completely missing the point of what Paul is saying. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to live, as Paul says, to live that our life is Christ. That there is no other priority that comes close to, that trumps, that supersedes the priority of Jesus Christ. That He is our single purpose and everything else in our life must come in alignment with that purpose. That's what Paul means by living a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life that is in, of, by and for Jesus full stop. He also speaks of contending for the faith of the gospel. See, it's not passive, it's, it's a 
contending. It's a declaration that if this is true, if what I've just read from Colossians is true, if, if what it uh, says in Acts is true that there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved, then we need to contend for that truth. If that is true, then other people need to know about it. There's a pair of magician comedians called Penn and Teller um, who are atheists, but they're recorded as saying that they have no respect, they're not always nicely worded people, but they have no respect for Christians who don't actually proclaim the gospel. Because how horrible do we need to be to believe that's true and not tell people about it? So they don't believe it, they think Christians are horrible people, but they get why we should tell people about it. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to contend for it because we believe it is the only means of salvation for everybody. Because we believe that God wants to reconcile all people to himself. And so Paul finishes this first chapter with these words in verses 28 uh, through to verse 30. He says... um, Well, I'll read the the last part of verse 27. He says, Contending as one person for the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that I will be destroyed, but you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so Paul is saying, whatever comes your way, persecution, opposition, hardship, live for Christ and contend for the gospel. Now, I don't know if we're going to wake up as the church in a couple months' time and things will have changed so drastically that um, Christ is illegal to be preached in Australia. I'd be surprised if things happen that quickly. I pray that that never actually happens in our country. But, but Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, facing much more horrible persecution and opposition, which we know from history is only going to get worse for them. He's saying, whatever comes, this is your call to live for Christ. He tries to shift their perspective from being afraid of opposition to the church to rejoicing at the opportunity to suffer for Jesus. Rejoicing at the opportunity to be slandered for Jesus. Rejoicing at the opportunity to be misunderstood for Jesus. Rejoicing at whatever comes our way because we stand in Jesus. And so I would say to us as a church, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if things are going to get bad for the church. I don't know if things are going to get better for the church. I don't feel like I've got a word from God about that for us this morning. But what I do know is that we are called to care about one thing, regardless of how good or how bad the conditions of our society are for the followers of Jesus. We're called to care about one thing, and that is Jesus. We are called to live for Christ. So for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And so this is one of the most profound statements in Scripture in its own right. It's, it's one of the most profound, memorable phrases that we encounter in the Scriptures, but it's far more profound if we understand the context in which Paul writes those words. It's the one thing that we should care about on the report card of our church, of our life. It's the one thing that we could, should consider whether we rejoice or not is, is Christ being preached. It's the one thing that we should live for and it's the one thing that should align our lives and the behavior that we, that we exhibit in the world is Jesus Christ and his gospel. It, to live is for Christ for us, not the size of our homes. To live is for Christ for us, not how great our gatherings are as a performance. Though as Ben reminded us last week that we should want to perform and bring our best to Jesus. To live is Christ, not to be driven by increasing our bank balance. To live is Christ, not to be afraid of others. To live is Christ, contending for the gospel, whatever happens. We are called to be people of a single and unshakable passion. That whether through our life, through our working, through our struggling through persecution if that comes, through our prosperity if that comes, even through our death, we are called to live that Jesus may be exalted. And so I'm going to invite Hannah and her crew to, to come and we're going to exalt him in song. But, but let me pray for us as a church that whatever comes our way, let us pray uh, for us as individual followers of Jesus that whatever comes our way, that, that we'd not just be able to remember these words, that we'd be able to not just um, have this as a pithy catchphrase, but that these words would be true of who we are in Jesus, that to live is for Christ and that even death is to our prophet because we get to be with Christ. So let me pray. Father, I once again thank you for these words in Scripture. I thank you that Paul wrote them to the church in Philippi. I thank you that they are as relevant to us today. And so I pray for us as a church, I pray for each of us as individual followers of Jesus that, that this statement would be true for our own lives, that we would live for Christ, that we would live in Christ, that we would live by Christ, that we would live for Christ, that our lives would be simply able to be spoken of as the words of Paul, to live is Christ. I pray that we would not fear death, that we would not fear persecution, that we would not fear opposition or any shift in the cultural climate. I pray that we would see even our own death as gain so I pray, Jesus, that your great name would be exalted in our church, in our lives, in our town. Through whatever means, Lord, I pray that you give us the empowerment to put that above all else in our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus.